This is the Self-Helpful Podcast, where I invite today's most important influencers to grapple with their own wisdom and stories in an authentic, relatable conversation about self-help and what drives them. I'm Kevin Miller. I'll be your guide as I distill my guests' greatest wisdom and methodologies into practical, transformative steps. This podcast has been downloaded over 60 million times by people like you and me who want to elevate our personal experience of life and the way we show up for others. Prevent, stop, and reverse Alzheimer's. Do you believe that, that Alzheimer's could be prevented, stopped, and even reversed? It's actually true. Does that mean it will be eradicated from our culture? Well, we know how to stop obesity as well, but it's not happening much, especially here in America. This show is about you, however, and those close to you. And can you do something about preventing, stopping, and reversing Alzheimer's? The answer is absolutely. This is my Functional Friday episode where we focus on our health and wellness So we have the physical and mental capacity to help ourselves. And today, Dr. Randy James and I take on Alzheimer's. There are never, of course, any guarantees when it comes to someone's health, but there are probabilities that we can count on. And in this show, we bring you quite possibly the world's leading authority on prevention, stopping, and reversing Alzheimer's. It's Dr. Dale Bredesen. He's author of The End of Alzheimer's and The End of Alzheimer's Program. Uh, And you need to realize most of the traditional leaders in the arena of Alzheimer's aren't of the belief that you can do anything but manage Alzheimer's and its inevitable decline. Alzheimer's disease has become the third leading cause of death in the United States after cardiovascular disease and cancer, destined to rob 45 million of Americans currently living of their most fundamental reasoning capabilities if we don't do something to prevent and reverse the process. Dr. Bredesen profoundly cites, you know cancer survivors, hardly anyone knows an Alzheimer's survivor. But he knows many, and he'll talk about them here in just a minute. Dr. Bredesen's credentials are in his bios long enough for a show in and of itself. If you're concerned about Alzheimer's, which I think everyone should be, type Bredesen, B-R-E-D-E-S-E-N, and Alzheimer's in your search engine. You'll find all you want. You'll find support for him by the biggest and best in health and wellness and functional medicine as well. Uh, and better yet, go check out his books and his book, The End or its End of Alzheimer's Program. And you can visit him at dr. 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 Bredesen. Again, that's B R E D E S E N dot com. The Self-Helpful Podcast pays tribute to Zig Ziglar, one of our world's most inspirational leaders. Ziglar is your premier source for equipping top coaches to help leaders and top performers excel professionally and personally. Visit Ziglar.com and let them inspire your true coaching performance. And I truly thank you for tuning into this Self-Helpful Podcast where I strive to help you and me elevate our personal experience of life and the way we show up for others. Next up, medical doctor, functional medicine expert, and my friend, Randy James, talk with Dr. Dale Bredesen about the most hopeful message you've likely ever heard regarding Alzheimer's and cognitive decline. I'm a foodie, and I enjoy learning about the process that brings great foods and beverages from idea to the table. And then I like tasting them and learning the nuances of what creates the most significant tastes 
from coffee to cheese to distilled beverages. I did a tequila tasting in Mexico and recently bourbon, Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon really impressed me from the story to the taste. I grew up in Kentucky where horse racing and bourbon are famous and I got introduced to Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon. It's produced by Heaven Hill Distillery, which has been and still remains family owned since 1935. And I'm impressed with the bourbon's ultra rich, smooth taste. And right on the bottle, it states that this bourbon is seven years old, which is actually three times longer than what's required to be certified as bottled in bond. I feel with beverages, the longer the prep, the better the taste. Being a bottled in bond product means it must pass a list of seven requirements that set the standard for this quality bourbon. So look for it at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Okay, well, Dr. Bredesen, uh, first of all, thank you very much for being here. Uh, it's an honor to have you on our show. We are graced with your presence, so thank you. Thanks so much, Randy and Kevin, for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, I wanted to introduce this by saying uh, to our listeners that uh, I had the privilege of sitting under you as a speaker in 2017 at an Institute for Functional Medicine conference in California. And I think it was uh, in your hometown there, and uh, or at least pretty close. So at that time, it was right before the book, um, The End of Alzheimer's, came out. And now you have come out with another book. So uh, we are taking the opportunity to talk with you about that. And so my first question for you is, uh, you're a neurologist. You've been doing this a long time. But what got you into Alzheimer's and dementia? Why did you get going down that pathway? Yeah, great question. Thanks so much for asking. So I, I was a, a scientist in a lab and, and uh, ran my own laboratory for 30 years. And uh, the idea was, this is the area of greatest biomedical therapeutic failure. As they say, everyone knows a cancer survivor. No one knows an Alzheimer's survivor. So it's the area, whether you talk about Alzheimer's or Lou Gehrig's disease or Lewy body dementia or frontotemporal dementia or any others, neurodegenerative disease has been where we have failed as a medical society, we simply haven't been able to help the people. So there must be something fundamentally wrong with the way we're going about it. If we're able to help cancer, but we're not able to help Alzheimer's and things like that. So my laboratory then focused on that question. Could we understand the fundamental nature of the neurodegenerative process? What are the molecules that actually push the process? Why is it that it's so incredibly common? And could we come up with an understanding that was deep enough that we would then be able to translate this into the first effective therapeutics. And we worked on cell culture models. We actually developed the first cell culture model for studying neurodegeneration in a dish years and years ago. And we looked initially at, at Huntington's disease. Uh, we also looked at Parkinson's in a dish and Alzheimer's in a dish. So we created these simple models, much the way the cancer doctors and cancer researchers did, so we could begin to see these. So finally, 
in 2011, we could see, okay, here's the kind of generally how this seems to work. So we started to see if we could develop drugs to change the underlying processes. We thought we had an idea about how this works. And so, of course, you're not going to know for sure until you make a human being better. So we started, we actually applied way back in 2011 for the first comprehensive trial. What we realized is that the balance that is critical for Alzheimer's disease is one that's impacted by numerous factors. And it actually fits really well with what we've been told by the epidemiologists. There's a whole slew of things. You know, if you're low in vitamin D, if you haven't had sleep, if you have chronic hypertension, it's so many things. If you've dropped your estradiol or testosterone, and you can go on and on and on, these things all seem to contribute. So how the heck do you put a model together that has all these disparate things? Well, we thought we began to understand that. So we applied to do a trial, and unfortunately, it was turned down. And they told us in 2011, no, this is a multivariable trial. You can only change one variable. We said, yeah, but the disease is a multivariable disease. How the heck are we ever going to get this? So part of what's been so crazy about this is it turns medicine upside down. It basically says the standard of care what we're trying to do out there with people trying to get a single drug that's going to be a cure for Alzheimer's actually makes no sense when you do the basic research. You've got to impact numerous factors. We, uh, By the way, we, we then uh, said, okay, if we can't get the trial going, let's go ahead and see if we can get anecdotal success. We published that in 2014, the first examples of reversal of cognitive decline, more in 2016, and then 100 patients with documented improvement in 2018. So we're very excited. We've got people eight years on the program still doing well. Well, I I can smile at that a lot because I know the that 2014 paper and uh, especially the one in the 2016 and it was practice changing. It was practice changing, and Kevin's wife Terry uh, also works in uh, neurological situation, working with TBI and trauma on the brain, and and it was so exciting to see real life. Uh, information coming out from the academician, from the guy who's who's doing the research and doing the study. So uh, I wanted to ask, I think there was an opinion paper, and to be honest with you, I thought this was thinly veiled right at you from UCSF, and I just wanted to ask you, do you think that was, I mean, uh, okay, so I, I just, I was taken aback. I showed it to my wife, and I'm like, I can't believe I'm reading this. And so in the academic world, and so, again, I'm a family practice guy doing functional medicine, trying to pay attention to things as best I can. But is it still the opinion of most of academics that the pathway that you're on is wrong? Yes. So the idea, and it's interesting, I just had a really interesting meeting uh, just last Thursday uh, with Amazon. And so Amazon has decided it wants to have an impact on Alzheimer's disease. And so they gathered world's experts uh, from Stanford, from Wash U, from the UK, from Israel, uh, from, uh, you know, from the University of Pennsylvania, all over the world, uh, and looking at, you know, what can be done. And interestingly, nobody had anything to offer uh, I had to be very careful about my talk and being you know, very specific about here are the data, here are how people get better, here's why, here's what the molecular model is. Uh, but the interesting thing is 
that this has been, as you know, this has been the history of medicine. In Silicon Valley, it's all about disruption. You want to disrupt with, you know, Twitter, with Facebook, with Google, all these things that are really fundamental changes in the way that we do things every day. And interestingly, of course, in medicine, and this is understandable because we can hurt people if we're not careful, of course. As physicians, uh, you know, as you know very well, you've got to be very, very careful. It's primum non nocere, first do no harm. But the problem is that Alzheimer's is beyond medicine. It's killing people left and right. It is a pandemic. And I think Jeff Bland made a very good point that COVID-19 is a pandemic within a pandemic. That's We've right. had a pandemic of <laughs> poor health metabolic disease in this country, really starting to go up dramatically in the 1970s. And so you see the increases in type 2 diabetes and in insulin resistance and in obesity, uh, vitamin D deficiency, zinc deficiency, you know, on and on and on. All the people that are you know, taking PPIs that are hurting their absorption, things like that, that really began then. So we've got to make a fundamental change, but we're in a field in which there has been, uh, there has been a feeling that it's not about disruption. It's about tradition and permission. So you have to have someone bless your idea, say, okay, you're allowed to do this now. And so, as I said, way back in 2011, we applied to do the first clinical trial where we're saying, okay, you actually have to hit multiple things to improve. And of course, this is something that's very well understood by functional medicine physicians, by integrative physicians. It's interesting because it's the way human physiology works. Now, as a scientist, I had no, I had no knowledge in, about, or interest in functional medicine. So we came, this is one of the reasons I believe in it so strongly now, because we came from strictly from the test tube. We actually said, okay, here are the molecules. Here's what they do. Oh, okay. Here's how these signals work. And you have to impact multiple signals. You really do have to get at the root cause. And of course, I wasn't convinced just by the theory. We started to see people get better who had no hope of getting better before, where we have wonderful stories from people who got better and wrote their own stories about what it was like to be told there's nothing you can do and then to be actually to get better. And we've got people now eight and a half years on the protocol who would have otherwise been in a nursing home by now who are doing very well and still at work and that sort of thing. So well, Dr. Benson, let me uh, let me ask you there and make a statement too. So your your efforts have also been practice changing for me. So for your own patients, but for the docs out here in the functional medicine world, and I came at it not from the scientific side. So always with a little bit of a question of am I flapping in the wind out here of this alternative science and that kind of thing. So when you told your story about, you know, we came at this through the science side from the test tube side. But then when you, when you actually put the test tube into a human being and come at it from the, the mandatory multivariate side where everybody has to have multiple variables because that's what life is. You cannot right. just isolate vitamin D or, 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 or whatever. So you have to create a nearly infinitely complex problem, which is what this is. And the NIH and the system and all of that is just not set up to do that kind of testing. So what you guys have done has been remarkable. You mentioned uh, Amazon, and right now I'm reading the book Curable. Do you know that one by Travis Christopherson? I don't know Curable. So he wrote Tripping Over the Truth with regard to cancer, but 
You mentioned Amazon. So Jeff Bezos, um, Warren Buffett, and the head guy of Chase, J.P. Morgan, in Silicon Valley, they are looking to disrupt. And the quote I highlighted in the book is they said this, we want to bring technology to bear on this problem of chronic health and disease. And I'm screaming up and down and saying this is not a tech. You cannot. You've got to get into people's lives. And so with you doing just that, taking this situation where medicine has failed, where people are dying and going into their life and and then saying what? So now we're going to go into the practicalities. What are you telling people to do to save their brains? Yeah, and I should uh, you know just finish up that you know you had mentioned that someone wrote some negative stuff and and yeah people <laughs> wrote to say this is you know that that they claim was we're saying that uh, that supplements cure Alzheimer's nobody said that nobody, at least yeah. we never said that and none of the papers you can look at the papers we don't use the term cure we use what we can actually measure which is reversal of cognitive decline so so that's the key uh, and so. Uh, so, so the bottom line is, yes, th- there, are, there are numerous things. And the, the, the thing that, you know, as a, you know, as a scientist, we're, we're, the whole point here is to have a conceptual model that is accurate enough that it predicts what's going to work and what's not going to work. And that's what's been so exciting to me as someone, you know, for, for many years writing grants and things like that. Now to be able to see human beings getting better is such a thrill. And every time I get an email from someone who's improved or from a physician who's had a patient improve, it's, it's very, very exciting. So I do think, you know, you mentioned technology. Technology will be our partner in the future because you do have to look, as you indicated, physiology is is complicated. You need to know thousands and thousands, if not millions, of variables. You know, we measure a few of them, like our blood pressure and our heart rate variability. And the good news is we can do that more and more than you know than we used to be able to do with all sorts of quantified self sort of monitors. There's a lot we can do now. But the bottom line is when you look to see what Alzheimer's is, and in fact, for so many of us, we are not operating optimally. Having, you know, Alzheimer's may be 50 years in our future or 40 years in our future or not at all in our future, but we're often not operating optimally. So you can actually look at the signals that drive the production and maintenance of memories, synaptoblastic, just like you think of osteoblastic signals for osteoporosis. And on the other hand, you can look at the things that contribute to the synaptoclastic signaling, to the pulling apart of synapses, which is a normal part. You're making and breaking connections all the time. You know, you're actively forgetting the seventh song that played on the radio on the way to work yesterday, things like that. You're actively remembering where your keys are and things like that. So there's this beautiful balance, this dance, dynamic dance that we're doing all of our lives. And as we get a little older, as we don't do the right things, we begin to develop some insulin resistance, some metabolic syndrome, a little bit of hypertension, exposure to toxins, uh, deficiencies in things like iodine, uh, vitamin D, uh, magnesium, zinc, 
the choline is a big one, so incredibly common. The vast majority of us are not getting enough choline in our diets. So you can't really deny these things are critical for optimal outcomes and improving those actually helps you. One of the things I've been doing during COVID-19 is following myself on chronometer and just to look to see, am I eating enough of this? Am I getting enough of these various nutrients? And of course, the first thing that popped up was that I was not getting enough choline critical for producing acetylcholine, which is the most important neurotransmitter for Alzheimer's disease. So I'm hurting myself by not getting enough choline each day, also not getting enough iodine, another one that came out of all this. And so so these things are all critical for that beautiful balance that we all should have. And unfortunately, chronically, when you don't have this, when when you have more synaptoclastic activity than synaptoblastic activity, Activity, you end up in the long run with Alzheimer's disease, which is so incredibly common. And about 45 million Americans of the currently living Americans are destined to get Alzheimer's if we don't do something about this with respect to prevention and early reversal. Most of today, you will be indoors, likely your home or your office. I am as well. Even with my treks out into the woods, I spend a lot of time inside. And we're going to take about 20,000 breaths. According to the EPA, the indoor air is two to five times more polluted than the outdoor air, sometimes up to 100 times more polluted. At my studio, we have heat being forced through old ducts. I walk on carpet full of years of junk. No idea what's floating in the air that I'm taking constant gulps of. The solution is an air purifier and air doctor is just the best. Air doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants and allergens such as pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold, bacteria, viruses. They do it so your lungs don't have to. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Go to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code KEVIN, and depending on the model, you'll receive up to 39% off or up to 300 bucks off. Exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. So to get this special offer, go to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com Use promo code Kevin, airdoctorpro.com, promo code Kevin. Thankfully, the days of building a business website, then having this massive endeavor to integrate an online store are gone. Today, Shopify has fixed all that. I had one business where we actually built the entire website on Shopify's platform. So whether you're just starting out or you're selling a million bucks of product already, Shopify is just the industry leader. It works the same for physical products or online and digital, and Shopify is just hands down the best out there. Most importantly, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. It's 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Getting people to buy is not that hard, at least to the buying point, but getting them to actually give their payment info is. And Shopify is king in that department. They also have top tier customer service, which I think is critical. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Kevin. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Kevin to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Kevin.
You you mentioned uh, you know choline, and I had previous to doing this show just posted on Facebook. We have a lot of our listeners there, and just said, "Hey, what are your questions? What are your concerns?" Most of them came around just, "Hey, am I going to get it? What can I do to affect it in any way?" Because the common perspective is that, "Hey, it's just you know, it's the luck of the draw. You get it, you don't. And if, if somebody in your line has it, you probably have a higher propensity of getting it, and there's not much you can do." You obviously know different. You're teaching us different. This is, you know, Randy's doing this with his patients as well. But then we do have so many of those one-offs. You guys mentioned a minute ago, you know, supplements. Can supplements cure Alzheimer's? Well, well, no, in and of themselves. Can choline do it? Can uh, we had somebody respond in the thread, somebody who is a health coach to some degree. And she said, oh, you know, keto diet and coconut oil. That's what you need. Well, pretty good stuff. Probably not in and of itself, you know, the end all to that, but that's what people are, are, are asking. And of course, that's what your book is for is saying, these are those primary areas. And I do want to go through those. I know that even amongst, even from your last book to this book, you know, you've had your own new discoveries on that. And I do appreciate you talking about what you're looking at for yourself. You know, you're watching your, you actually said choline and I'm, I'm the resident layman here. I have no idea what that one is. Which one, what, what is, where, where are we getting that? Well, like he said, acetylcholine, uh, where are you getting it? Yeah. Well, famously, I always say eggs. Yeah. Eggs is a good one. Um, liver, uh, oysters. Uh, there, there's some vegetables you can get it from. So there are numerous ways to get it. But the bottom line is that you should have about 550 milligrams per day. And I mentioned this in the new book uh, of this. And I should mention, uh, I worked on the new book. The idea was let's make it the let's make it very very practical. Let's make it so people can take the instructions and just do it. Because the first book that came out, and thank you for mentioning that back in 2017, uh, was uh, we we're very happy about that. Uh, it's in 32 languages now. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for five months. So very happy about that. But a lot of people came back with that and said, "Hey, you haven't given us enough detail. You've given us the basic science. You've given." us how the disease works and you've given us a beginning of what we can do about it what parameters to check etc but what we'd like to do is we'd like to have more clear instructions more practical things some workarounds some troubleshooting and then also what have you learned since the first one came out so we've put all of that in and i worked with two other people and the idea was we'll have the science version of this will then have the clinical version of it, and then we'll have the user version, someone who's doing this every day extremely successfully. So you may know Julie G, who's the one who started ApoE4.info. She herself is an ApoE4.4, so she's a very, very high-risk uh, group because of her genes, uh, has a, a strong family history, and she's done exceedingly well and gone from 35th percentile in her cognitive testing to 98th percent. I mean, she's wow. sharp as a tack. And she stayed that way for eight years, which, again, was unheard of before. She's doing very well. And so she's worked out a lot of the things like, here's, here's how I do this, and here's why I take it, and here's why I do or don't like coconut oil, and on and on and on. Uh, so we've got, we've got Julie and then my wife, Dr. Aida Lachine-Bredesen, who's the clinician, uh, and then myself. And so we, this way we give three different views that can really hopefully give people an idea. Here are the instructions. Here's what you can do day to day to day to make people better. And yes, choline is one of many things that turns out to be critical. You know, the bottom line is we are giving ourselves 
increased risk for Alzheimer's pretty much every day by what we eat, by the stress we're under, by how we live, by the sleep that we miss, by the exposure to multiple toxins that so many of us have and most of us don't even know about, living with mold species. Um, Again, that I thought mold had nothing to do with Alzheimer's. I've been very surprised to see how often toxins made by molds, in fact, increase risk and actually drive cognitive decline. It was shocking to me. Uh, And then various pathogens, whether you have P. gingivalis from poor dentition or F. nucleatum or T. denticola or P. intermedia, all these things are pathogens in your mouth that you can get rid of, but they are often in people's mouths and they actually show up in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's. So if we're living with these, we are increasing our risk. So, you know, you brought up the issue of, you know, how do you avoid it? And I think that's that's such a great question because the bottom line is virtually no one should get Alzheimer's. That's the surprise. This should be a very rare disease. But because we are not preventing it, we are not doing the right things ahead of time, and then our doctors aren't evaluating the right things. It goes back to what you said uh, earlier, Randy, about, you you know, you've got to evaluate specific parameters, and they're not evaluating these things. And so they don't know. They just say, oh, yeah, we don't know why you got Alzheimer's, and we don't know what to do about it. So, in fact, this should be rare, and we should all get on prevention. And we just yesterday, great timing, we just yesterday came out with something called pre-code. So we had recode for reversal of cognitive decline, but everybody said, well, what about prevention. So we set up an entire program called Precode for prevention of cognitive decline. And the good news is if you're asymptomatic and you have you're scoring well on your cognitive testing, which you can do very simply online in about 30 minutes, then in fact, you don't have to do anything nearly as extensive as someone who's trying to reverse it. We've seen time and time again, the earlier on, and, and of course, prevention's the earliest, then in fact, the, the easier it is to get results. And I talked to one of the doctors who's seen dozens and dozens of patients. We've now trained over 1,500 physicians. And I asked her, and I asked a couple of them now, uh, hey, have you ever seen seen anyone who's gone on this program who's then converted to dementia? And the answer is no. No one has seen anybody who's gone on appropriate prevention, hit the right metabolic marks, dealt with the right things toxicologically, and then despite that, gone on to get dementia. So the bottom line is prevention is quite effective if you if people do it. And so we encourage everybody as they're, you know, 45 years of age or older, even 40 years of age or older, if, especially if you've got it in your family, especially if you have any concerns whatsoever, please get on prevention. Check out Precode. You can look myprecode.com is one, one way to go. Or check, take a look at the book because we go into what's required for prevention. And that's exactly what I was going to ask is let's be prescriptive. Where can they go? So you said literally myprecode.com. Because um, exactly. I, I want people, I want to pull a piece right out of your book that I want people to hear. Because again, as the resident layman, I, I, I did not perceive Alzheimer's in this way, and it's so helpful to understand that. And this is right out of your book. What we call Alzheimer's disease is actually a protective response to a wide variety of insults, 
to the brain, uh, af- uh, inflammation, insulin resistance, toxins, infections, and inadequate levels of nutrients, hormones, and growth factors. So taking from that, and then when you say Alzheimer's has now grown to be the third leading cause of death in the United States, then I, by proxy, am saying, well, then that makes sense that we must just be insulting ourselves to death to Alzheimer's. We are doing that, which, you know, nobody really wants to hear in essence that, oh my gosh, I'm to blame. But then on the other side, I love hearing that, oh, then I have the power to change this. I have the power to go prevent this, stop this, reverse this. And I think that's, you know, going back to the post that I did on Facebook, that's what people want to hear because they're scared. They're watching their parents. They're dealing with their parents. They're caretaking. I heard from a lot of caretakers that are burning out and they're burning out, taking care of this, uh, their, their, their loved ones and worried that now they're going to get it feeling like, again, it's luck at the draw. And since their parents had it, they're probably going to get it. And here you are saying that oh, even if you have, and then Randy talks about this a lot, even though you may have some genetic propensity, that loaded gun, you have the ability to let that trigger be pulled or not. Or to not. me, it's the most exciting thing ever, which is why we're doing the show. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that's the thing that's been very hard for standard of care physicians to get, that here's this thing that we've been telling people is completely incurable. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know how to treat it. We're going to give you a drug and you're going to die, which is just horrible. You know, it's a thing that so many people, as they say, the number one worry of people as we age has been Alzheimer's disease, have been losing your mind, losing your cognition cognitive abilities. And we're now saying, no, you don't have to have that happen. And in fact, we can stop it in virtually everybody. And yes, we have people who are very far along who've improved, but it's harder and harder. It's literally like, like a plane. You know, if a plane just has its nose go down a little bit, you pull it back up, it's simple. If it's in a, you know, if it's in a big dive, much harder to pull it out there. But think about it. What happens with the brain in Alzheimer's? It shrinks. So Alzheimer's is an insufficiency. It's an insufficiency of in many different areas. And as you mentioned, it is, why is it insufficient? It is typically responding to an insult. Your brain is not trying to kill you when it makes this amyloid, which has been vilified. And everyone said, oh, we got to get rid of the amyloid. Well, guess what? People have developed drugs, spent hundreds of millions of dollars, literally developing things to remove amyloid and they have not succeeded. And it's because you're making the amyloid because it is a protectant. It is an antimicrobial. It kills, interestingly, viruses. It kills bacteria. It kills some fungi. Now, why would that be bad for your brain? Why is it bad to have something as get rid of this? Here, oh, so here's the analogy. It's just like COVID-19. What's happened in COVID-19? We were, there was an insult, in this case, SARS-CoV-2. We were told, got to pull back. You got to go inside. You got to do social distancing. You got to do sheltering in place. Things pulled back. What happens when we pull back? We're now in a recession, right? Everyone's pulled back there. It's not the interaction that there was before. That's the same thing that happens in the brain of an Alzheimer's person. You have insults, and it's typically more than one, but it can be just the things you were saying. It can be viruses. It can be things like uh, different molds. It can be different things from, from insulin resistance to nutrient depletion to loss of trophic factors. So we've got to figure out which ones are driving it for 
each person. So you lose these things and your brain says, uh-oh, I've got to downsize. I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to produce this stuff that kills these bacteria that I'm being exposed to. And by the way, when the pathologist looks at the brain of Alzheimer's patients, this has been, this has been published repeatedly. You know, what do you see in there? You see bacteria, you see fungi, you know, you see viruses. So you are responding. This is a protective response. And the antimicrobial nature of the amyloid beta peptide, which is one of the signatures of Alzheimer's, uh, was actually first shown by two researchers from Harvard, uh, Professor Robert Moyer and Professor uh, Rudy Tanzi. And so this, and this fits in perfectly with what we're saying, that this is a pulling back of your brain. Now, here's the problem. If you say, okay, I'm just going to give you a drug and I'm not going to check any of this other stuff and just let you continue to go, what do you think happens? You're continually exposed to that stuff. You keep downsizing, 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 downsizing. And after a while, you can't dress yourself. You can't speak. You can't take care of yourself. And that is, you know, late stage Alzheimer's disease. Well, all that we're saying is go out and find out what are the things that are driving this. If you are deficient in certain things, find it out. If you're exposed to specific pathogens, find it out. These things are all available. This is part of functional medicine. Then, in fact, you can now decrease all of the insults and increase the support. And guess what? People get better. Can I, excuse me, can I ask there two questions? One of the things that is a pulling back on the brain is also these technical things like it's, it's lack of support from choline or from your hormones, but it is also the the constant stress of a toxic relationship as well as a toxic substance or the guy who hates his job every day 40 years or just doesn't drink enough water or go exercise so so yes we've got to do both and that's where i kind of think we in the functional medicine community and i and i hope that the rest of the community would come along and say we can measure some of these things there's things to do that we can really focus on and Turn the TV off and go to bed on time and take your wife out on a date. And like you guys did, write a book together. Uh, things like this are also trophic for the brain. And one other question to, to, to put on there, if you agree with that, is because I know with Alzheimer's, famously, it's, it's a diagnosis of, of you have to be dead and they have to do an autopsy on the brain officially. So my question is, what about somebody who dies without the diagnosis of dementia is there evidence also that that my brain if i died right now would have that it's not sterile like we thought about that we all have exposures to viruses and toxicants and um and that everybody has maybe a little bit of amyloid but if yeah. we have enough trophic factors and we and we have an and we keep the bad things out enough that we can stay in that balance that you're talking about yeah, and you've got a lot of great questions in that one paragraph. Sorry. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yes. Uh, first of all, there is a tremendous evidence. And, you know, to some extent, what, what we're working on right now is reformulating the way we think about cognitive decline. Because, as you know, everything that we have done in this area for classification over the years as physicians has been from the pathologist. So the pathologist looks at your brain and says, this was Alzheimer's. The pathologist looks and says, this was frontotemporal dementia, or this was Lewy body, or this was progressive supranuclear paralysis, or right down the line. But the reality is we want to now re- 
contextualize these and, and, and reclassify them as this was because you didn't have enough of A, B, or C. Yes, these things funnel into a pathology. So in Alzheimer's, many things funnel into that, that imbalance, that synaptoblastic, synaptoclastic imbalance, as you indicated. And you brought up a great point about stress. And, you know, part of the problem here is that people and doctors in both, people and their doctors, Will they don't take it seriously? They'll say, "Well, come on now, you know, stress." That uh, one of the guys I saw early on, uh, back in uh, 2014, uh, said to me, "You know, this guy's a, a brilliant internist." And as he called me because he'd always was before the book came out and before the paper came out, and he said, "You know, if you guys ever come up with a drug that looks good, please let me know because I'm suffering." And he'd already had a positive PET scan. And you know, you mentioned the pathologist. Well, now you can make a diagnosis based on. PET scans uh, based on cerebrospinal fluid. So are, there are now good ways to do to uh, during life to diagnose Alzheimer's. And this guy clearly had it. Uh, and so uh, I told him, look, we're, we're actually working on something that seems to be working on people. Very excited. Why don't you come by? Let's talk about this. As I would introduce each thing, he would say, that's not a cure for Alzheimer's. You know, it was a real curmudgeon, you know, and that's not a cure. I said, no, not by itself. You have to take this. This is a, you know, we're, we're going to play. This is an orchestra that's playing a beautiful tune now. We got to tune up the violins. We got to tune up the timpani. We got to tune up the clarinets. You have to have all this working together. One thing by itself is not the way the brain or the body works. And he kept saying, no, no, no. So finally, I said to him after a while, I said, look, give me six months. If I can't make you better in six months, then go somewhere else. He said, there is no other place. So, okay. All right. Then, then, give me, then give me six months. And he, by the way, has done absolutely beautifully. Um, he's had increases in his hippocampal volume. Wow. Um, he's done fantastically well. He's actually seeing his patients again and, and doing great. And he had very clear contributors. He had, in his particular case, he had metabolic syndrome. He had a very high HSCRP of 9.9, had a very low vitamin D of 21, he had a fasting insulin of 32. Uh, you know, you'd like to have it at four or five. And so this guy had clear reasons that he was developing cognitive decline. And so these were fixable. And in fact, he's done very, very well. So yes, stress is huge. And we do have people, by the way, that literally will fluctuate based on how much stress they have. When the stress is low, they're sharper. When the stress gets high, they're less sharp. And if you want to shrink a brain quickly, one of the things you can do is expose it to high levels of cortisol, and you will see a shrinkage. You can also expose it to high levels of glucose. Both of those things are associated with atrophy of the brain. The other thing you can do is expose it to high levels of homocysteine. And there's a beautiful study out of the UK showing that as your homocysteine rises above six, as, that, as it gets up into eight, 10, 15, and so many of us are walking around with homocysteines 10, 12, 14. In fact, up to 12 is considered, quote, normal, right. but it's not optimal. That's another issue that we deal with. What is optimal versus what is, quote, within normal limits? And so uh, the UK study showed that as you start going up, your brain starts to decline in terms of size, starts to atrophy. And then on the other hand, when you bring your homocysteine back down, then the atrophy stops. 
very striking studies. And so these are things that we're all walking around and typically are unaware of. And so these are all part of the pre-code that I mentioned earlier. We want to look at these things so that we can tell you, just as you know, so many people know their blood pr- pressure and their cholesterol, you should also know your fasting insulin. You should also know your homocysteine. You should also know your HSCRP. You should also know your toxin status. These are all critical parameters and several others that we want to check to see, in fact, whether you are at high risk for Alzheimer's. Let's, let's end it with this generation. We can make it a rare disease after the current generation if we all look for the right things and do the right things. So I, I would like to say right there that all of those things that you mentioned are on our basic panel, and I think most functional doctors out there would say, well, yeah, that's, that's day number one that we're looking for that. And one of the arguments I've had for a long time is I would say pre-code and Dr. Bredesen, what you're doing, this is true primary care. That, that's what we should be doing for not our, only our brains, but our hearts. And what's good for our hearts is good for our brains. It all makes sense. What about the as we, you mentioned insulin and glucose. And so one um, big item out there that I wanted to ask uh, is what about um, on the cardiac side, where now we've got statin therapy that is driving the numbers down so low. Yeah. And there's a theory that this is also depriving the brain of some of this very good fat that the brain needs for on the trophic side of things. So where have you landed on, on that balance How do you explain that? How do you walk with patients down that line? It's a great point. Um, And again, we're going strictly by, you know, here's what this does to your neurochemistry. Uh, And you can see that then, for example, uh, published literature showing increased risk for people on statins. As you know, there's an increased risk for type 2 diabetes. There's also an increased risk for dementia. So I think you have to be very careful. Now, you know, people get into arguments saying, well, there are some studies that suggest that there's a reduction uh, in Alzheimer's in people who are on statins. There are some that show an increase. You know, how can that be? Is How can it be good and bad? Well, because it is good and bad. It has, it does have this anti-inflammatory effect, as you know, and it can improve uh, if you've got someone who's, you know, very high with lipids. But there are, here's the thing, there are better ways to do it. You don't have to accept the side effects that you're going to get with statins if you simply want to improve your lipid profile. And no question, this gets into another critical area of Alzheimer's. What's happening in these patients is they're not reaching the far reaches of their brain with a critical combination. It's imagine you've got an outpost that's in Alaska, and you've got to get water and food to that outpost. Well, you have to have three things. You got to take the food, you got to take the water, and you've got to travel all the way to that outpost, wherever it happens to be. And in our brains, what's happening to so many people is they're either lacking the blood flow to those regions. And there was a beautiful presentation the other day from a group out of Tel Aviv University showing that these longitudinal MRIs showing the appearance of silent strokes as people age little one here little one there little one there you're just again it's a downsizing you're not able to perfuse with appropriate substrates those regions of the brain as you're getting older so we want to therefore improve that now what do you have to carry the the, you know the food and the water you've got to carry oxygen absolutely crucial and you've got to carry 
ketones or some form of, uh, of metabolizable substrate. And so many of us, unfortunately, are able to use glucose, but not ketones. We need to be able to use both. We need to be metabolically flexible to be able to use these ketones. And this is why people have gotten some good results with taking things like coconut oil. You have to be careful because that can drive up your, you know, that can drive up your, your lipids, that can drive up your LDL particle number. So you have to kind of balance that. And, and if, you're, if you've got APOE4, if you're positive, or you've got a poor lipid profile, consider taking things like you know, exogenous ketones, ketone salts, ketone esters, uh, things like that that can actually be uh, helpful uh, so that you don't drive your lipids up. So you've got to have that triad to get things to function optimally. And so many people have because of hypertension, because of inflammation, because of poor vasculature overall, because of poor lipid profiles, the inability to bring those particular substrates to the far reaches of their brains. And so no surprise, again, you're seeing some atrophy in the brain over time. So all of those things are absolutely crucial for us to get best outcomes and to continue to have best outcomes over time. And the good news is we can address all these things. Uh, one of the things that's been really interesting to me is this phenomenon of EWOT, exercise with oxygen therapy. And I don't know if you guys are interested in EWOT or not, but I have to say I've been more and more enthusiastic about this wow. because it seems to be a way to drive the very things that you need to the very places that you need them. Huh. Well, no, no, give me a layman's explanation. I have no idea what that is. So exercise with oxygen therapy, and it's, it's a much less expensive way to do hyperbaric, and it also has some advantages because you're now exercising as well. You're not just sitting there and getting uh, you know, hyperbaric oxygen. So the, <clears throat> the idea is that you couple an exercise, and you can do it. Typically, people do it with things like bicycles, but there are you know, stationary bikes, but there are other ways to do it. <clears throat> but while you're doing that, you're now breathing 100% oxygen. And typically, you can do this for 20 minutes a day. You don't have to do it for two hours. Do it for 20 minutes. You're now giving this increase. And and again, beautiful uh, presentation the other day showing that when you're driving this up, you get the advantage that you're now supplying the very things, just like you know, you're, you're taking the food and the water to the place in Alaska that's your outpost. You're getting these things there that aren't typically getting there. But you get a second advantage as well. As you now get off it, it falls and your brain is saying, oh, wait a minute, the oxygen isn't quite what it was. So it is actually having a response that it has to low oxygen. Even though it went from very high to normal, it's sensing that as a reduction. And so it's producing trophic factors that's helping you to support the brain. So you get the best of both worlds. Now, you actually want to cycle more than once. You want to cycle several times to get the best outcomes. And you cycle for about five minutes or so with these. But doing these things together actually is a way to improve cognition, to improve blood flow, to improve oxygenation, and to improve function. So it's really, a, I think, a very exciting piece of the overall protocol that we're trying to do to optimize cognition. One, one of the specific things I, I had on my list to ask you was about HBOT therapy or hyperbaric yeah. oxygen therapy. Yeah. Um, but the EWOT therapy, I had learned about it from from a patient and it was new to me, uh, but that holds extra interest for us because we're at 8,600 feet. Theoretically, then we would yeah. be at even 
No, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking yesterday I joked about that. So yeah, we're at 8,500 feet. Most of my bike rides are at 9,000 and I'm doing some heart rate, you know, watching on my exercise. I was trying to stay below 130. I thought, I can't, I can't get out of my chair and keep my heart rate below 130 at this, at this rate, man, to get on that thing and put Absolutely. oxygen on and put oxygen on at the same time. I, I love You're, that as a, well, and it's, it's, it's the, um, it's the heuristic of a little too much of that is, is bad for you, but a little bit actually creates a response in your physiology that improves the physiology. It's one of the reasons we think that alcohol might be good for us in, in you know, a moderate amount is because it, it's actually a toxin that the liver responds to. Uh, Low-dose naltrexone is one of those things that there's a response from the body, and exercise is one of those things. The body has to respond to that stress, and as it does so, it creates a healthier state thereafter. Yeah, it's a hormetic response, as you indicated. And, you know, this is, and you can do this, you're right, um, hyperbaric. And actually, the, the talk that I mentioned uh, was a very nice uh, talk on hyperbaric. And so the idea was you can't just go into a hyperbaric chamber. You actually literally have to cycle things. And so this was a, you know, a large hyperbaric chamber where multiple people could go in, put masks on, and take them off for five minutes and that sort of approach. And they are getting good results, both with, uh, uh, with cardiovascular disease, with stroke, that sort of thing, as well as uh, with cognitive decline. So I do agree with you. I think that the ability to push your physiology to get to get improvement, again, it's what you're doing when you lift weights. It's what you're doing when you row. It's what you're doing when you cycle. Uh, all of these things. But the, the critical piece for physiology is you can't stress it so much that it breaks. Right. This is why, you know, you go too far. And it's, this is where, you know, knowing where you stand is so critical. You cannot push it too hard or you actually will get some decline. But you need to push it a little bit to get the body to continue to renew that's, you know, that's the I, trick. I want to stay right here, but I, I do want to jump back real quick, just from a prescriptive resource aspect. You were talking uh, about a lot of the things that we want to pay attention to, that we want to measure. And you said, yeah, that, that you as a functional medicine doc and your peers would have those things on a panel. But we yeah. often, that is an issue, uh, Dr. Bredesen, that we talk about on here is we're talking about the things that he does in his practice. That is not scalable for everybody. Not everybody can find a functional medicine provider or, or afford whatever. And so when we talk about, especially these tests and these measurements and these opportunities for them to see where am I at? Yeah. If you have any literal uh, uh, resources for that, because sometimes we're struggling to find where can they go get these tests if they do not have the type of provider who can uh, prescribe those or order those for them. What are your That's a great point. Yeah. Uh, and so a couple of points, you know, so we have a table uh, in the new book, as you probably saw, that shows the target values for all of these different things, even including electrophysiological studies, et cetera, that show, you know, what is going to give you optimal output, optimal function. The second thing is you can get these tests online now. So just like so many other things. You can actually get these directly now. So you can go to mycognoscopy.com and you can actually get the direct lab tests that are critical for cognition. Uh, and with the pre-code, for people who are truly 
truly asymptomatic and are just interested in prevention. And we have to be a little careful because we've had, and I mentioned this in the book, a number of people who have come in for prevention. And because this sneaks up on you, we don't realize, wait a minute, I'm, I'm really not as sharp as I used to be. I'm not quite remembering phone numbers the way I used to be and that sort of thing. Many people who will come in for prevention have already begun to have problems. And one great example, a woman who said, you know, this is in my family. She's APOE4 positive. Uh, and uh, she ended up having a MOCA score, which should be 28, 29, 30. That, that's the perfect MOCA is 30. Uh, hers was 23. So she had already significant mild cognitive impairment pre-Alzheimer's condition herself. She was 49 years old. Uh, and uh, she's done beautifully. And she's back up to 30 now, doing really, really well by doing, again, by addressing the things we could see what was driving her problem and how to improve that. So you can get these directly. If you're truly asymptomatic and scoring well, then you can go through pre-code. If you have some symptoms or you're, or you're scoring poorly on the cognitive test, then you want to go through recode and get, so the, no surprise, you'd have a more extensive set of tests if you already well, have on, some. Well, I was going to ask on, on your cognitive testing, are you, is your, is your go-to to use the MOCA or do you use a different one? Yeah, that's a great point. And so what happens, each of these different evaluations has a has a different dynamic range. Sure. So in other words, the MOCA is really good for people who have MOCAs between about 10 and 25. For the ones who are in late stages down at zero, you, you really need the MMSE, again, which is another easy thing to do. But that's, sca that's scaled for people who have Alzheimer's. The MOCA was developed for people with MCI. If you have SCI. So, you know, we should go through, you go from asymptomatic, you have, then you have SCI, which is subjective cognitive impairment. The MOCA is not very good at picking that up. You're still scoring 28, 29, or 30 on your MOCA, and yet you clearly, you know you have problems. So, for that, we use CNS vital signs, but there are other ones, again, to use. People use cog state or other things. Uh, we happen to like CNS vital signs, uh, and, you know, it's, it's produced some very good results. It's been used in lots of different studies uh, drug studies and things like that. So a good one to evaluate. And what that one's more sensitive. So the you know, CNS Vital Signs did a nice study where they looked at people who were APOE 4-4, so at highest risk versus those who were 4 negative. And they could clearly see, even though they all had normal MOCAs, the ones who are at the highest risk, in fact, did have this, the beginnings of change. And so it's a good one. And again, people should, this is another big change. People should not be worried. People often say, I don't want to take a cognitive test because I might find out things aren't perfect and there's nothing I can do. No, there's everything you can do. And in fact, the earlier you check, the better you are. So we really have to change the way we think about this. There's a tremendous amount to be done. And in fact, Alzheimer's should be a rare disease. And again, as you indicated earlier, Randy, you know, it's not just about Alzheimer's. It's about, you know, what about when, you're, when your function is not perfect? We can all have better cognitive function by optimizing the various factors that are critical for cognition. And, you know, wouldn't that be great if everyone could do their jobs better, if everyone was doing better with their mood, if everyone was doing better and more efficient in their day-to-day -day activity? It'd be fantastic. This is exciting for me because it does bring it back into... It, it brings it back into the spectrum of life, and we've got all of these tools to use. And one of the points that I want to hit home today, and, and you keep saying it, but your life is your medicine, or it's Absolutely. your poison. 
And so, and we've got these tools that we can use and it's going to feed back into giving people the motivation for doing the exercise. And then, you know, uh, then it's just gravy or icing on the cake if we can do EWOT or something like that and make that 20 minute exercise worth even that much more. Uh, and then that is, we don't like the word biohacking like you, like you kind of indicated, but it's, it's bio enhancement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's using normal life to, to do the best possible things for our brains and our bodies that we can do. And, and you said the key word here, which is performance. And we all realizing that this, this is again, part of 21st century medicine. It's not about being normal or diseased. <laughs> it's about improving performance, feeling better, uh, doing better, you know, competing better, uh, you know, living your life better. It's so incredible. Think back, think back to the, you know, the 1930s and 40s. By the time you were in your early to mid 50s, you were pretty much getting ready. You're heading toward retirement age. You know, you're expecting, uh, you know, you're expecting to have a few extra pounds. You're expecting to be slowing down. That was kind of the expectation back then. And now you've got, you know, 70 and 80 year olds running marathons, uh, bicycling, doing all sorts of things that we didn't think of before. Uh, and it's been pointed out uh, by, you know, gerontological researchers that, in fact, we now have a, quote, second middle age. We really have oh. kind of two middle ages we go through. Yeah. There's a tremendous opportunity for longer lifespan, longer health span, longer brain span, all of these things with appropriate functions during the day with with changing and then we go into this in the book about you know how do you improve performance overall and i want to hit on again just the tangible takeaways for people that you talk about in the book you know keto flex 12 3 lifestyle approach and i'm going to read right from it, it includes strategies how to's and troubleshooting advice for living the program action plans and cautions are provided for diet exercise sleep and stress. I mean, it feels like we're back down to the basics, you know, in so many ways. And this is, yeah, it's what the show, it's what our foundation is. And I appreciate you at the height of uh, Alzheimer's, dementia, cognitive decline, that you're saying this is where we can now address it immediately. That's what your book is about. That's what your, your, uh, your programs are about. And I, we always enjoy asking this question too, that for you specifically, you, your daily habits and routines, what does Dr. Bredesen eat for breakfast and lunch and dinner? How often does he fast? Uh, which I, your pyramid, I love at the bottom of your pyramid, uh, you have fasting that is not nobody's pyramid. <laughs> right. And, you know, you can then begin with diet, exercise, sleep, stress, and then there are things you can add to that. So, again, we're going straight by what's the biochemistry, what actually tweaks your brain, what makes it function better. And, yeah, the, the big surprise is this stuff that people thought was not important is turning out to be critically important. And, it's, and it starts as a foundation for anything. So, first of all, I do very much with what we wrote in the book so that we, I don't eat breakfast. Typically Um, I try to have a fast that typically goes 
for about 14 hours. Um, so if you know, finish if you finish at 8 a.m., uh, you don't want to eat or 8 p.m. If you're finishing, you don't want to eat before 10 a.m. And you can and some and again, some people like to go into time restricted uh, eating, uh, you know, window eating uh, of eight hours or even six or even four hours. Uh, and if you're APOE four, as we mentioned in the book, and I should simply say that why we keep talking about APOE four, uh, a quarter of the population has this. So in the United States. About 75 million people have a single copy of APOE4, and about 7 million people have two copies, and the vast majority don't know it. If you don't have any copies, and for example, I'm a 3-3, I checked myself, so that means that my risk during my lifetime is about 9%. Not huge, but it's not zero either. If you have a single copy, it's about 30%, and if you have two copies, it's well over 50%. It's more likely that you will develop Alzheimer's than not. And so you want to address that. Again, nobody should get it. Do the right things, get on the right prevention, and everything should be fine. So I typically go for that window of about 14 hours um, and then typically have a um, typically salad and um, olive oil. Um, I try to go and I use chronometer to help mm-hmm. um, it's free. It's an you know, easy thing to use. Uh, and you can look at the various nutrients. And I try to get to a diet that's, that's going to be uh, a high good fats, very much like KetoFlex 12-3, uh, intermediate protein and uh, low carbs. Uh, and of course, my big problem is I grew up in an era where everything was about, uh, you know, high fructose corn syrup and everything was about sweet things and everything. You know, if you if you were a good boy, then you're going to get some fudge or you're going to get some a brownie or, you know, that's been the big problem. And of course, what happened when I went through medical school, you want to get people to come to a seminar, you give pizza. And so, you know, I, I get, you know, everything wrong. So changing that around is is really critical. And so, you know, getting on having the high good fats. And so I try to go typically for around 70% of the calories being from good fats. And then, and that's, you know, nuts and seeds and, you know, and olive oil and and all those sorts of things. And at times I actually do um, take some, uh, take some exogenous ketones. Um, So sometimes we'll take what's called KE1, which I happen to like, uh, but there are others you can use as well. That's, I like that because it's a combination of salts and esters. It has some of the advantages of both, but other people use other things. Uh, And then Uh, try to get about 15% uh, protein. So we're typically, as I mentioned in the book, you know, 0.8 grams to one gram of protein per kilogram per day. Uh, And so, uh, you know, again, if you're out there and you're working, you're doing a lot of workouts, you probably want to increase that. If you're detoxing and you've got exposure to mycotoxins and things, you want to increase that a little bit. And some people will get it, push it up to 1.2 or 1.5 grams per kilogram. Um, But, you know, uh, around 0.8 to 1 per day. Um, And then the other 15%, mostly complex carbohydrates. So, salads, you know, vegetables, things that you get so many things. People have said, oh, wait a minute, you know, you know, these things are going to give you carbs. Well, they're, they're complex carbs and they have a tremendous amount of fiber. One of the big problems that our current generation has um, is that we're not eating enough fiber. And in fact, of course, it is Dr. Anderson showed years ago, it helps your glycemic load. It helps your ability to deal with carbohydrates. It helps your detox capability. It helps 
helps your microbiome. It helps your gut. I mean, it's amazing how important good fiber is. And so I try to get over 30 grams a day. You know, our ancestors probably had closer to 100 grams a day. But a lot of people now are walking around 5 or 10 grams a day, I mean, virtually no fiber. And then they're surprised when their lipids are poor, when they've got t- t- type 2 diabetes. Well, yeah, you're not eating something that's actually critical for those very parameters. What about the on your 12-3 uh, recommendation, one of the questions I wanted to ask was about your three-hour window prior to bed. And I'm asking this a little bit selfishly because uh, I don't eat breakfast either, and we are a sporting family, and so almost every day with uh, we've got three boys, and so there's my wife coaches, so our day goes late into the evening, yeah. and we eat. We, nobody wants to eat before practice, so we eat after practice. So it's it's going to be late, and I'm kind of stuck in this place. So I'm. So one of the questions is, what burden am I putting myself under if I'm eating at eight eight thirty, and then also uh, trying to get to bed on time? So yeah. it's I'm I'm definitely not hitting that three hour space there. Um, so what burden is that putting on me? Yeah, that's a very good point. So the whole point of that is you don't want to spike your insulin. And then as you're going to bed, your insulin is high. Um, and, and so, you know, you can actually, you could try C- CGM. I mean, you may have already done this. Have you tried CGM for a couple of weeks and actually found your, see what your glucose no, does? No, I haven't. I, I'm a fan of Dr. of Peter Atia, and he's talking about that all the time, but I haven't done yeah. it yet. So that's a good thing to check and just see where you stand, because what we're finding is there are two problems. People will spike their glucose. And of course, that's not good for your brain. That's not good for your lots of things, your pancreas, you know, on and on uh, your vessels, etc. But the other problem is when they do that and they don't have good fats and they don't have a smooth curve, they now also dip. And one woman, for example, kept waking up in the middle of the night and saying, what the heck? Why am I waking up in the middle of the night? She was dropping into the low 40s with her glucose. So in fact, you can have both problems. Now, if you're eating late, then you know I, I get it. You, know, you guys are active. Okay, that's great. What you want to do is make sure that you don't have any simple carbs and that you have plenty of good fats and some protein so that you really smooth this out because otherwise you will have a problem or you could have a problem with dropping too low in the middle of the night. Do you have problems with waking up in the middle of the night? No. Uh-uh. And I would well, say, I mean, our, our, our consistency of what we eat is, is on that good yeah. side and we're doing the good fat and, and the good fiber. What about doing an oral glucose tolerance test? Will that give me as good of information as the CGM? We won't give you as much information, no, uh, but it will give you some information. And of course, um, it, it goes, it's the next step beyond uh, fasting insulin. So sure. as you know, these okay. things kind of come up one at a time. And so that will give you some nice information. And if you do the OGTT, you also want to include insulin to see if sure. you're spiking. That'll take you to another level of sensitivity, as you know. Uh, the nice thing about the CGM is just you're following it, you know, all day, all night, so you really can see the signature uh, for a couple of what, weeks. What's the but cost yeah, of that these days? Uh, they, those things were uh, running around eighty-five dollars. It was not hu- wow. hugely expensive. Uh, of course, they want you, you know, to buy bells and whistles and things like that, uh, but you can do uh, you know a lot without spending too much on that. And again, just 
just do it once. It's two weeks uh, for this thing. Um, you don't have to do it repeatedly. Some people like to do that, but that's really not necessary. It'll give you a nice profile of when I eat X, what happens to my glucose? Yeah. When I eat Y, what happens to yeah. my glucose? When I sleep at night, what happens to my glucose? That sort of thing. Yeah, I, 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 need to, I, I want to do that. I want to, because I've had those times of, you know, eat whatever and I'm fine, eat something else that I think is benign, but obviously it is causing some uh, reaction. You know, I, I do want to hit, you guys talked about it earlier when you mentioned the JAMA article, which people out there who don't know that, it's what, Journal of American Medicine? Medical Association. Okay. Um, that they gave some pushback on the idea of, you know, supplements are going to cure it. But to that degree of nutritional supplements, I, I want you to speak to that some. Of course, Randy, we talk about that a lot. Randy's a big proponent of supplements, the right kind, good quality, yada, yada. And I know you have, you actually have your own brand, the Recode uh, Supplements. And talk about those in regards to Alzheimer's specifically. Yeah. Again, it's not the only magic bullet that's going to do it, but you do place a high value on those. Well, and one other question there, Dr. Bredesen, as the, the question that I have there is there's so many things you could put in there. There's yeah. so many things that are, you know, the PQQ and some of these other things that are yeah. – they're clearly good, but how do you then, if you're going to design, how did you go through that process of, of landing on the ones that you did land on? Yeah. And so first, let me just say, you know, this is not my own brand. It is the, the whole point of this is how can we take what is in the test tube, what's telling us here are the critical things to make and keep those synapses. And then how do we translate that into, okay, so yeah, you do need to exercise. Here's why. Here's how critical that is. You, one of the most common things we found is that people will drop their oxygenation at night. So incredibly important for people to look, nocturnal oxygenation, check your, you know, just like in COVID-19, we've all heard, you know, you got to be careful about what your oxygen saturation is, if it's starting to drop, you may be exposed uh, to the virus. So all these things are critical to find out. With those, and I guess this is where, you know, my pushback against the, the JAMA article was, was, it was actually kind of silly. Uh, <laughs> these guys are ignoring the fact that, of course, we want to have insulin sensitivity. Of course, we want to have optimal magnesium, which is so critical. You know, magnesium 3 and 8 alone published papers showing improvement in cognition. I mean, you know, each of these things. Of course, we want to have optimal vitamin D. The old idea of the neurologist sticking his head in the sand and saying there's nothing you can do about this is ridiculous. In fact, we want to make sure that people have insulin sensitivity, metabolic flexibility, optimal trophic factors. And the good news is supplements can help us. Why would we not take advantage of these things. This is a terminal illness. You know, as I, it was, we always talk about when, when, uh, when I do the training, you know, eat, when someone comes to you with cognitive decline, either you're going to make them better or they're going to die. I mean, that's how bad this disease is. So we want to pull out all the stops. We want to do everything right. We want to get people into ketosis. We want to make sure that their oxygenation is, is, is key, is, is, is optimal. We want to make sure that their methylation is good. We want to make sure that their detox is good. And so absolutely, as you indicated, you want to take advantage of the fact that there are some supplements. Now, what happened was at the beginning, we just said, look, please take 
you know, to please take methyl B12, for example, please take some methylfolate, and so forth and so on. People then came back and said, wow, that's just too many pills. Mm-hmm. So we actually worked with a group that was been fantastically responsive to say, okay, well, let's put something together that has fewer pills that makes it easier for people to do this. Because again, if we don't do everything right, people are going to go downhill. And so we work with uh, uh, Darren Peterson and the group from Life Seasons, and they've been fantastic about, okay, let's let Let's put these things together. We had you know, multiple long meetings to go through, you know, what did everything? And as you said, Randy, yes, there are so many things you can do. And this is, again, why we separate people into, is this recode? You really have problems and you're trying to reverse cognitive decline in which you want to do a more extensive list. And so they've created a whole morning blend and evening blend. And again, we've worked also with Julie, who says, okay, here are the things that have worked best for me. She's a daily user. She's been showing, hey, here's what actually helps. And we see you know, many people the same way. When they're getting on the right things, it's critical. So, yes, this does include optimizing your vitamin D and your magnesium and things like whole coffee fruit extract that increases your brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Again, we're just coming from we want the BDNF to go up. Okay, how do you get the BDNF to go up? Number one, you exercise. That actually is one way to push it up. But in fact, you can push it up higher with this whole coffee fruit extract. Okay, I, you know, I'm agnostic. I don't care. I simply want that biochemistry to be there to make people better. Now, if you're the one who's in there just for prevention, you're doing well, you don't need that extensive list. And so we created also with Life Seasons something new, which is called NeuroQ. Uh, and so this is just a smaller number of things that helps you. For example, it reduces inflammation, uh, which is really nice. Um, it has the whole coffee fruit extract that improves your BDNF. So it's just got several things in there, much easier to do, easier to take. And of course, no surprise, less expensive. It has fewer things in it. So we're trying to make this available to everybody. Get on as early as possible. And there will be fewer things to do. And we see this again and again and again. People who start early virtually always do very well. People who are starting very late, some of them do well. But you've got to really push and you've got to get more of these parameters uh, optimized. So so that's the whole idea behind the Recode supplements and behind the NeuroQ supplements. And again, I would argue, uh, you know, if you don't have systemic health, the idea that you make your brain better is really naive. You have to have systemic health to have a better brain function. You mentioned ketosis in there, and that you know, as I shared on, on Facebook, it's one of the first things that comes up talking about Alzheimer's is is uh, is the the keto diet and whatnot. But in that, we've even had that discussion of you know what is how long, how often is this something that you're trying to you personally, I mean, you're trying to stay in constantly? Are you cycling it? What's your, what's your methodology? So what, what we've had now that we, to some extent, can kind of crowdsource because there are thousands mm-hmm. of people who are doing this now. And so we can see best outcomes and worst outcomes. And one of the things we've found is that the people who do the best tend to get their ketones up between 1.0 and 4.0 millimolar beta-hydroxybutyrate. And again, we've just uh, we started working recently with a group that does uh, that has breathalyzers. I never believed in breathalyzers before. Uh, there's a group now, Biosense, that it has a nice breathalyzer. Um, they're measuring what they call ACEs, so you're now measuring, of course, acetone instead of beta hydroxybutyrate. But it does give a very good idea of whether you are in ketosis. 
Uh, and so in that case, you want to be over seven aces and even if, if possible into 10 aces per day. And as you indicated, a lot of people believe that it's a good idea to cycle. We suggest you do that once per week. So you want to stay in ketosis most of the time and then you want to cycle out once per week. And it kind of gives you a reset. Some people don't do that and do just fine. Some people believe strongly in the cycling, especially for people who are very thin, that's been an issue because you tend to lose weight when you're doing ketosis. And so if you're already very thin, people can lose so much weight that they have trouble just because of that. And therefore, uh, cycling and liberalizing uh, once or twice a week for those people actually can be very, very helpful to get them back on track. You know, you're, this may be a good place to land. Um, I was told or saw that you're currently, and, and this is right off the what I was given, currently directing the first clinical trial ever that will identify and target the specific drivers of cognitive decline for each patient instead of attempting to treat Alzheimer's or MCI without determining what is causing the cognitive decline. Tell us about that. You know, you bring up a great point because there's so much of this that if you think about it for two minutes is obvious. It's like, well, you, you know, duh. Yeah, we, of course we want to do, of course we want to have optimal systemic health. And one of those is think about the way that all clinical trials for Alzheimer's have been done. First of all, you predetermine a treatment and you write it down and submit it and say, we're going to treat with drug X. You predetermine a treatment for people without knowing what's causing their cognitive decline. The second thing is you don't bother to look for the very things that are causing the cognitive decline. If you think about it, it really makes no sense. And then, of course, you're treating something that has nothing to do with why the person actually has the problem. You're not doing root cause medicine. So this is the first trial in history and we're in the midst of it now. And it will be finished in December. So very enthusiastic about that. Uh, this was the one that was turned down back in 2011. It was turned down again in 2018 because it's multivariable. Then in 2019, uh, we were allowed finally to say, okay, fine, you can go forward with this trial. And the idea of the trial is completely different. So what you do is for each person who comes in, you evaluate a large number of different variables and say, okay, do you have specific pathogens? If so, let's treat those pathogens. Do you have specific toxins? Okay, if you do, let's detoxify you. Do you have a leaky gut? If you have a leaky gut, let's fix that leaky gut. Do you have low vitamin D, uh, pregnenolone, progesterone, thyroid hormone, estradiol, testosterone, progesterone? All these things are critical for an optimal brain, as we know. And so therefore, it's addressing all of these things to optimize optimize them, and then look to see, okay, that, that's the way to treat. So the, again, it's not a predetermination. It is precision medicine because you're actually treating the things specific to each person. Well, that's, that's the end goal. That, that is, I wanted to ask also, have you ever heard of Gibson Research? And their, their, um, their other arm is Learning Rx. They're kind of aimed at um, also at cognitive decline, but uh, okay. kids with TBI or, or things like that. Okay. Yeah. And they're here locally, and, I, and, and we did a little bit of a pilot study exactly on what you were talking about. But that's where we got the flack was there's so many variables that how do you, how do you scale this out into the economy with that many variables? And I agree, it's complex. But I'm so glad that you guys are doing it on a big scale. That's so exciting. 
Um, because that's going to have an impact then on the front side for prevention on helping people to understand why to choose a different way to live. And then how will that be disseminated? So we'll publish that next year. And I have no doubt there will be lots of pushback and people (laughs) will not allow us to publish it in specific journals because it goes against the standard notion for Alzheimer's. And that's okay. Um, This will come as we show that this is actually a way that gets much better results than any other way. Then I think, you know, you asked about how do you now bring this to community? I think it's a great question. Of course, my hope in the long run is that people realize you should never let yourself get to having Alzheimer's. That's the key. Right. If we all went on appropriate prevention, that would be relatively inexpensive to do. And that would allow us to reduce the global burden of dementia. As it currently stands, as you know, Alzheimer's alone is going to bankrupt Medicare within the next 15 years. I mean, this is a huge and growing problem. This is a trillion-dollar global health problem. So the idea that, well, you know, you've got to look at a few things and you got to spend a little bit of money on getting these tests. I always tell people, take what it would take for one year of a nursing home and take one-tenth of that and use that to help yourself because you'll be able to get all the tests, you'll be able to get all the treatment, and you'll keep yourself out of the nursing home. So you'll actually save a tremendous amount of money. I was going to ask you, the because the ultimate prevention here is going to be through the lens of personal responsibility and in incentivizing the individual to take a different pathway. Um, we are working with some other companies that do medical cost sharing. Are you familiar with that? Sure, yeah. And so one of the ideas there to make a big dent in at least the American side of chronic health or chronic disease and chronic degenerative issues is to flip it around. And rather than expecting uh, somebody else to come along with a, a better idea of how to pay for XYZ medicine is incentivize the person to make a better choice. And, and through medical cost sharing, we can have a, a much smaller price, take the savings and spend it on this kind of a program. Absolutely. You know, when I was a little boy, I never imagined that we would have a time when it would be standard to get on an airplane and not smoke. Everybody smoked all the time. You know, it was a standard. Oh, you can't stop people from doing this. Well, now everybody just understands it's very routine that you're not going to be smoking on an airplane. And look what it's done. It's it's actually, you know, helped a lot of people. So uh, this is an area where over time things will change and people will realize, hey, you know, Alzheimer's can be a rare disease. Just as, and I mentioned this in the book, just as we've had global programs for vaccines for smallpox and polio, these things were you know, past scourges, of course, the past scourge of syphilis, the past scourge of leprosy. We should make Alzheimer's a past scourge, and we have the ability to do that. So we need to have a global program, not to have a vaccine injection, because that's not what helps Alzheimer's, but to have a program that, in fact, addresses these critical parameters so that relatively inexpensively, we could reduce the global burden of dementia. And that's where things are going. By the way, this same sort of approach Modifying the chemistry is going to be applicable to Lewy body dementia, to ALS, and by the way, to things like autism and ADHD and schizophrenia. All these things have their own chemistries that are combinations of these various insults. So we should be able then to address all of these things. So this is just the beginning. 
Well, that's exciting. Thank you so much. This is what we wanted to bring uh, the audience. I'm grateful for the resources and I'll be putting those in the, in the intro and in the pieces of this, I want people to hear that. Uh, but just that Alzheimer's can be a rare disease. Uh, that's exciting. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for giving us your time today. Absolutely. Thanks, Randy. Thanks, Kevin. Great to talk to you guys. And thanks for all the great work you guys are doing. Thank you. You know, I am not immune to Alzheimer's or cancer or any disease or ailment. But as you heard here, I, I we can, and I'm living a life, striving to live a life in a way that gives any of those things the least probable opportunity to gain root within me. Uh, you heard a lot of incredible info and directives today in this show. I'd encourage you to take full ownership and get Dr. Dale Bredesen's book, End of Alzheimer's Program. And you can visit him at Dr. Bredesen, B-R-E-D-E-S-E-N.com. Thank you, as always, for tuning in to this self-helpful podcast where I strive to help you and me elevate our personal experience of life and the way we show up for others. Stay driven, my friends. Stay driven.